Good afternoon, 7investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of 7investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein, and, and you're in for a treat today. I am being joined for the first time solo by Dana Abramovitz. Dana, welcome to the program. Hey, Dan. That, uh, so we're doing a show today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, healthcare telemedicine, and then I'm going to talk to Anurban Mahante about software as a service stocks. But I wanted to, to give a little note at the top of the show. We understand that the market is a sea of red today. Uh, that, that's been the case for a lot of days this week, that there's a lot of volatility, there's a lot of fear. And I promise on Friday's show, uh, special time, 1230, with Simon Erickson and Matt Cochran, we will address that. I'll take any questions you have today in between segments, but we can't do every show about market volatility. We're trying to hit that once or twice a week. Uh, and it makes sense when we have Dana on to talk about things that Dana is an expert in. But Dana, before I get to that, how how are you? Have you done anything fun? Have you gone outside without a mask on and twirled around? Like anything enjoyable at all? That would be lovely. Um, so it's it's been raining here in Houston, so haven't been able to uh, spend too much time outside. But um, absolutely, just you know, trying to go out. Um, I met with some vaccinated friends over the weekend, so that was that was really nice to see people and hug people again. I am looking forward to a world where we don't have to say that, where it's just vaccinated is the assumption uh, and we could just go about our normality. I'm not going any farther into that question. I understand that as a political time bomb. We'd love your questions and your comments. You want to say hello. Dana, of course, covers very broadly the healthcare space, maybe not as specifically into the biotechs as Max Chasco, more sort of broadly. And we're going to talk about the future of telemedicine. So feel free to uh, to ask your questions there. Let me ask you, Dana, before we start. I've talked about on the show, I've done multiple telemedicine appointments. One wasn't that successful. During the beginning of the pandemic, I was straining my voice and I had to send pictures of like, ah, like, like to the doctor and basically it was useless. I've had other telemedicine appointments where it was like, yeah, my wife just got diagnosed with this. I have the same symptoms. Can I get the same prescription? By the way, I'm allergic to penicillin, so don't give me the same prescription. Um, have you had any telemedicine appointments? You don't have to be specific about whatever ailments they were. Mine just happened to be pretty generic ailments. Um, so actually, I have not. Um, I, so, you know, I work out. Um, and so I'm pretty healthy and I haven't um, had the opportunity to use telemedicine, um, but I've worked at a company that um, incorporated telemedicine in their products. So I, I really understand the value of it um, and how it is useful for, for people. I promise we will take your questions on Teladoc. We've got a couple in quickly. Dana, you run a bar studio as well. Are you also doing teleclasses? I am. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, when the pandemic hit, we had to switch um, pretty quickly to find some way for, uh, to live stream our classes. And so I um, teach in studio and um, on live stream. And it's actually working out well for people who are traveling or don't live close, but um, want to continue um, taking our classes. So it works really well. Yeah, I have to say, I've done a couple of yoga classes with my old studio in West Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which I recommend highly. We will tweet out from the 7investing Twitter. Uh, if Dana shares how you can take remote classes on her Twitter, we will retweet it from the 7investing Twitter. But let's, uh, Twitter, Twitter, let's get to it. Uh, I've got a few questions here, Dana, about okay. telemedicine. So as I see it, we're in the early innings of telemedicine. How do you see it changing in the next few years? 
So, so I'm going to step back and say, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on how you defined, you know, innings, but, you know, kind of like with the vaccine, people have, we've been working on telemedicine and making that um, possible so that when the pandemic hit, it was really easy to pivot and, and make that, that available. Um, so yeah, so you know it's it's taking off, um, and I think that you know all that early work, um, you know, figuring out, you know, making sure that it works, um, figuring figuring out the technology. But the most important thing, um, and this is you know for better or for worse in healthcare, um, reimbursement. So making sure that um, you know providers get paid. So I look at that, Dana, like, let, let's talk about innings. When, when I say innings, obviously I'm referring to a baseball game. Baseball games have nine innings. Yeah. But a lot of things have to happen before the baseball game. You have to hire an umpire. You have to build a stadium. I feel like we've done that. And the actualities of telemedicine are still sort of being sorted out. Like during the pandemic, there was a drive to do everything via telemedicine. Mm-hmm. But I would argue, so, so let's say I have my annual physical due, that it might make sense to do part of my physical via telemedicine, part of my physical is getting blood work, which you usually are doing someplace other than the doctor anyway, and a third part might be having a nurse practitioner uh, take you know take my blood pressure and other things like that. Do, do you see sort of an evolution where we have this just really hybrid healthcare system? So telemedicine is obviously just a tool in the toolbox, and you know just you know the goal being providing the best possible care. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to replace in-person visits, especially for certain things. But, you know, for, you know, for, you know, basic checkups or, you know, like I'm, I'm having this cough or I have a sore throat or can you look at this? Um, you know, certainly you can make that with a televisit without, um, you know, needing that you know, in-person visit and, you know, the waiting rooms and then backing up, you know, the doctor's office. And it's just, you know, there are all sorts of issues with actually physically going to the doctor. And uh, we, we have a comment here from Donovan Paul Thomas, uh, who says, if you work out, you won't get sick. I'll jump in and say you get sick less. I am in nowhere near the shape Dana is. Uh, but for the past two years, when I've been working out very regularly with a trainer uh, during the period of my life where I did yoga almost every day. Yeah, I think it's fair to say uh, the data shows Max Chasco sent me all sorts of stories that if you work out, uh, you get sick less often. Your thoughts, Dana? Yeah, so it, it actually helps with your immune system, right? So when you exercise, you're reducing levels of cortisol and all sorts of other things that are going to, you know, stress out your immune system so that when your body is exposed to all sorts of things, um, you know, your immune system is able to fight it off. And I think it just, you know, helps you feel good and, and that helps too. So let me put this in investing terms. I think of it as infrastructure investment. So if you look at what Amazon did with building out its whole you know, delivery pipeline, that then paid off. Every time I go to the gym and put in a little workout, you know, it maybe uh, you know, lowers my blood pressure, takes a little, little stress off my organs, you know, maybe actually makes you feel good, which is, which is actually good for your, for your long-term health. So we don't want to belabor this, uh, but we do recommend uh, that everyone go outside, take a walk, get a little exercise in. So Dana, let me throw out the second question here. Okay. 
Uh, and it's kind of a two-parter. The, the big question is, do you think where we get our healthcare will change? And I ask this because I've gone to the CVS Minute Clinic for little things. Uh, my wife and son got vaccinated at a CVS. Uh, I assume when I next get a flu vaccine, I'll probably do it at the, the CVS in the Target that's walking distance from my house. These are things we used to go to a doctor's for. Do you think there's going to be a wholesale shift? Obviously, CVS wants there to be. Yeah, I, I I like that actually. Um, you know, the the minute clinics and CVS, um, you know, even CVS is rolling out some mental health solutions, which I think is great. Um, and you know, it's I, it, it's really convenience, right? So if you are able to get the care that you need, even you know, so like preventative care, even more importantly. Um, then you're actually going to access it, right? It, it has to be convenient. And, you know, as we have, you know, Amazon and Whole Foods delivering all the things to us, you know, we're going to, we want all of, all of that care as well. Yeah. I will argue that uh, there's also just little conveniences. Like I have uh, what's known as white coat syndrome. When you go to the doctor, I, I just assume I have everything right. and it makes me very nervous and my blood pressure tests high. And I will go to the CVS Minute Clinic afterwards and have my blood pressure taken when I'm not nervous, when I've learned that I, I don't have you know, a disease that would soon be named after me, and my blood pressure tests normal, um, you know, it, which is obviously something at my age I've been working on quite a bit. So if you're aware of it, you could sort of communicate to your doctor like, hey, here's how I'm going to get some alternate checks or alternate care. Uh, and there's lots of places you can do that. And obviously... There's an entire disenfranchised part of the country that might have better access to a CVS than they do to a hospital or a doctor's office. And certainly the prevalence of walk-in clinics, uh, I don't know if they've grown in Texas, but my God, in Orlando, where obviously you have a massive tourist population, it feels like every third building is a walk-in clinic. Um, we have a ton of good questions here. We're going to take all the questions at the end. That's partly the factor of, I can't see the questions. Uh, my, my screen is not set on big enough at the moment. Uh, Dana, this is one we talk about all the time. So, you know, I'm a huge believer in technology. I'm wearing an Apple watch. I use it almost too much. I get worried if like my heart rate's at like 90 instead of 70. And sometimes it's just because I, I read something exciting or, or, or who knows what, uh, you know, you really have to look at the trends, not the in the moment data. Uh, but that being said, do you think that big tech can disrupt or be part of a disruption of the healthcare industry? Well, I, I think it can be part of the disruption, um, most certainly. And, you know, you were talking about your blood pressure, right? And so there are now, you know, at-home measurement devices, and you can communicate that to your doctor's office, right? So, you know, I mean, like, you know, all the, um, you know, that, that personalized um, tech um, you know, from, you know, your bed to your toilets, you know, you can send all that information to your care team so they, they know what's going on. Um, but yeah. St Steve Simonton and I actually did a ep an episode where we talked about the smart toilet that will actually <laughs> tell your doctor. Now that's obviously very specialized, mm -hmm. but we have $25 patches that will tell you if you're dehydrated. I pointed this out, they're made by Gatorade. So I'm not entirely sure that's who, like, I, I feel like Gatorade is gonna err on the side of you're dehydrated, go have a Gatorade. But that technology exists. My brother wears a band that gives him all sorts of information about his, uh, his health info, his sleep rate. I had a hard time sleeping in a watch and I found it just stressed me out to know if I'd slept enough or not enough and that it wasn't really a good thing. I've worked on meditation and things like that. Now, obviously, you wrote about this here, Dana. We failed on some of the big collaborative issues with healthcare. Those, those haven't worked. 
But I do think Apple, Amazon, Google are going to have a role. And obviously some of that just starts with when you have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of employees, you have an efficiency in how you do healthcare. And that's what we're seeing with Amazon. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna seg to Amazon. That's actually my next question here, a final one. And then we're gonna go to all of your questions before we bring in Anurban Mahante on software as a service stocks. So uh, that is, what's your thoughts on the report that Amazon is gonna offer at-home medical tests, uh, including a COVID-19 test? I, I, I'm a sucker for this, I have to admit. I've taken the like at-home gut biome test and I've never actually gotten anything useful out of it. I've had very conflicting reports uh, on what I'm allergic to and what I'm not allergic to. So I tend to go by a, how do I feel more than any of these tests, but can Amazon become a big player in this space? Um, well, you know, so I think they can become a big player by, um, you know, providing the market space and they're already doing that. Like if you look, um, you know, on Amazon. So so one of the um, at home testing companies that I follow is Everly Well. So they're based out in Austin. I'm a big fan of their CEO, Julia Cheek. Um, and yeah, so you, you can go to the Everly Well store in Amazon and order all, you know, like food sensitivity kits, the COVID-19 um, test. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm a small company person, you know, like small business person. Um, I don't have the, you know, large company mindset that, that Jeff Bezos and Amazon have. Um, science is hard though. Um, and I don't, I don't know if, um, if it, if it were up to me, if I would switch and, you know, create labs and set up a diagnostic um, company just to, you know, just dealing with the FDA alone. Um, I think they're in a position to work with some of the companies that have already done the science, already gone through the regulations and just working to help them. So part of the reason they're offering COVID-19 tests is because they actually had to set up that technology uh, for testing their own employees. So they actually pivoted one of their labs to do that, but mm -hmm. they are working heavily with third parties. I don't think Amazon is gonna become full on in the testing space, but I do think there might be testing that makes sense in the workplace, like COVID-19 testing. There might be other things and they'll be able to roll that out as a business solution. We have a lot of questions uh, and we're gonna take them, but I'm not always promising you an answer because on some of these, Dana and I have only done a couple of these shows together uh, and I don't necessarily know what she's an expert on. So we're gonna take <laughs> Sandeep David's question, uh, Sam, uh, if you wanna throw that up. Has Teladoc become a commodity? I, I just want the first part of it. Uh, and the second part is, or does Livongo add unrivaled value? I'll, I'll, I'll take a little bit of this. Uh, I think the jury is out on Livongo. That's def definitely a differentiator, but I think you need a bunch of differentiators. I absolutely worry that Teladoc is a commodity because I have no idea if I'm using a white label version of Teladoc or I'm just using somebody else's. I can usually tell if it's a bad experience that it is in Teladoc. Your thoughts on this data? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, so my new insurance company um, offers Teladoc. And, you know, so I, I love that, you know, you know, that insurance payers are providing, um, you know, telemedicine services. Um, is it a commodity? I, 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 I don't, I don't know. Dan, are they branding it as Teladoc or are they, or are they actually just saying telemedicine? 
No, no, no. They're branding it as, as Teladoc. So yes. So with, with my insurance company, I actually got my Teladoc card. Yeah. Okay. That, that's really interesting because that shows that your insurance company sees some value in the brand name. I yeah. know my insurance, which I have insurance through my wife's job, uh, does not brand specifically. And I have no idea what I'm using. Uh, I think it's, I think Cigna is my healthcare provider. Um, and I'm going to guess it isn't Teladoc because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't quite as good as experience as when I actually went directly to Teladoc. We're going to take Sam E. Brewster's comment next. Uh, and this is one that, that I'm not sure you know about. Uh, is 23andMe going to be a big player in this space? I think 23andMe is a novelty company and, and anything else is kind of a pretty big pivot. Dana? Yeah. So, you know, the, the things that 23andMe is doing, you know, it, it's, it's, um, you know, so they're, they're not even looking at your genome. They're looking at SNPs. They're looking at um, variations you know, and, and different, you know, different people. So it's really hard to specifically test for things. Um, and that, you know, you know, I, I'm a fan of 23andMe. Um, I, I don't know if they stay in this space just because they've had problems with the FDA in the past. Um, and, you know, if they, if they stay in their lane, then I do not see them, you know, going into the, the same level of testing. Yeah, 23andMe, and I, I, I hate to, you know, downplay a company, but 23andMe feels to me like it's like sort of for fun. Like, it, you know, I though, though I do have someone in my world that found a half brother and that turned out to be a positive story, but that could also turn out to be a negative story. You know, I, you know, there's, there's some people that probably don't want to know about all of their, their part siblings and other things like that. I think genetic testing is, uh, is absolutely going to grow, but it's one of those where you're probably going to want to involve a doctor and not necessarily just like a kit you sign up for on, on a yeah. website. And, and, you know, so 23andMe, it's not really genomic t testing. So the, the science, the technology that they're using is different, you know, so like, you know, comparing, you know, I, I'm sure we've talked about, um, you know, uh, other genomic companies um, on, on this um, program before, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, looking at just variations across people. So it's not diagnostic. We're going to take Max Lucas's comment before we move into the software as a service part of this segment. Uh, telemedicine seems like it will be the most useful to rural communities that could be hours away from a doctor, even for a basic checkup. Your thoughts, Dana? Absolutely. And that's where, you know, we've seen um, a lot of that working. Um, you know, even if, you know, you're working at, you know, you know, say you're living in a rural community and you have um, cancer, you know, you know, I don't mean to diagnose anyone. Right. Um, but, you know, like having access to a big hospital and, you know, like a big research hospital, you know, is, is helpful to have that. So, um, yeah, it's and, and we've seen that, you know, so I'm in Texas and, and I know a lot of people that have been working on the policy components and they've really um, seen the benefits of telemedicine um, in rural communities. Yeah, and I think we're going to see it work in rural communities in a similar way it can work in business. So let's pretend that my, my family has a home in Peterborough, New Hampshire, not not completely rural, a fairly dense community, but not a lot of hospitals nearby, probably about a half hour from a medical facility. So in theory, I could go online, have my telemedicine appointment, 
And it turns out that, geez, I, I need a blood draw. I need a, I don't know, a kidney function test. Who knows what it is? And maybe there is a healthcare company that's collecting, okay, in two weeks, we're going to send out a nurse and they're going to hit all the homes in this community. So it's going to be very efficient. Well, that will work in an office setting as well. Uh, so, you know, a hundred people on an Amazon campus need their blood pressure checked as a second part or need a blood draw as a second part. I think this is an evolving model. And obviously, uh, you know, in rural communities, we've seen drone deliveries of, of drugs. We saw that uh, during the pandemic. Now, does that work in Manhattan or in Houston or even here in West Palm Beach? No. Uh, might it work in, in, in Peterborough, or New Hampshire, where, where, you know, my family has all, you know, all sorts of land, as do most of our neighbors? So I'm really excited to see how the technology is going to work out. Uh, Mike Fee, we see and appreciate your question. Might be a little more specific uh, than we're gonna get into here, but uh, it's certainly one uh, Dana can can copy and pass on to Max. Uh, and we can we can all talk about that offline as a team. And certainly if it's one we know, we'll bring it up on a future show. We appreciate you for being here, I think every day watching us. Dana Abramovitz, you have to go clean the studio. So while you do that, uh, give, give me 30 seconds here because let me give a quick pitch. Friday is a big day for 7investing. At 10 in the morning, we do our new subscriber call. That is people who've just joined our service. We walk them through the service. We walk them through the basics, how to open a brokerage account, all sorts of, of really you know, things you assume people would know. That's wrong to assume. We always talk about being too inside baseball. We try to break down all the terminology, give you everything you need. Then at 11 o'clock, we have our members call. This is a 90 minute call, it goes till 1230. And we're gonna talk about what are our, our favorite picks now among all the picks we've made. We're gonna update our most recent pick. And then we are going to update another pick and take a ton of questions. So that is a great call. And that, of course, pushes back the start of seven investing now to 1230. But it's 1230 and you're going to get me. You're going to get Simon Erickson. You are going to get Matt Cochran. You might get Max Chatsko and Steve Simonton. You might get Dana for a bit. Probably not. It's late in the day for her. Uh, maybe Honorbond <laughs> will, will, will be up uh, and, and join us as well. If you'd like to become a member, it is not too late to become part of those members-only calls. That is seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. It is really easy to join. $17 a month or $170 for a 12-month subscription. You are crazy if you don't join. With that, I'm going to bring in Anurban Mahante. Taped this interview a few days ago. He is talking about software as a service stocks. You are going to want to stick around. Feel free to ask questions as it goes. I will either field them or send them to him. And then Dana and I will be back to quickly hit our finisher and close the show. Sam Bailey, if you want to play that video, we appreciate it. Welcome back to 7 Investing Now. Uh, I am joined today once again by our very own Anurban Mahante. Anurban, how are you? How are things? What day is it? What time is it? I don't even know what time it is here. I can't tell you what time it is there. <laughs> well, probably Thursday for you and Friday morning for me. Uh, it's just a little past 6 a.m. Well, I've been up since 4 a.m. if people have seen my tweets today. <laughs> yes, we, we, we have noticed that. And I, I saw you pretty active on our Slack board. Uh, just to give people a peek behind the curtains. So we have a really active Slack. And, and, and poor Matt Cochran, who, who has a regular job in addition to this and and poor Anurban, who's on a different time frame. I was gone for an hour. I went to the gym for an hour and I came back 
and just one thread had 61 messages in it. Like, so <laughs> before we taped this, I was just taping something. So before we taped this, I literally threw up a note and just said, hey, if I didn't respond to something you expected me to respond to, you're gonna have to draw my attention to it. So all of this like great communication, we almost need a tool to prioritize some of these great tools we have. Like it, it can be overwhelming. Uh, and I only mention that because we're gonna talk about software as a service. And that is absolutely something that could happen. It wouldn't shock me if somebody created a, something I could subscribe to that organized my Slack and looked for, you know, things where I'm expected to respond, but they didn't message me. Like, so but let's talk about software as a service. And you framed this, you said my software as a service, that is some people go by SaaS, business is currently losing money. Yes, they all are right now. Uh, they're, they're all getting hit in share price. Uh, they're, they're, when you say losing money, do you mean share prices dropping or do you mean that the companies aren't making money? Well, 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 right now they're losing money both ways. Like a lot of the software as a service, you know, the SaaS businesses are actually losing. When I say losing money, I mean on an operating basis, like if you look at their operating earnings, it's negative, right? So they're not, they're not positive operating earnings. They might have high growth, but they have um, negative operating earnings, which basically means they're losing money right now. Um, and the stock stocks are down. So I mean, it's losing money both ways. So uh, I meant the former, but yeah, it's true that they're losing money both ways right now. Now, is that largely because you're taking whatever you would make and investing? You're, this isn't a pizza place. The goal isn't to get to a million dollars and make 300 grand. It's to get some to some sort of grand scale, right? Absolutely. So one of the things with, uh, with software, right, and, and it's different for different types of software, right? So if you think about software that's serving consumers, that's different from serving enterprises. If you serve enterprises, typically it means you're getting into the workflow of the enterprise, right? So like take Slack. Slack is an enterprise software. Um, we have so much data on Slack. Like it's really hard right now. And in seven investing is a young business, right? But for seven investing to actually change from Slack to something else as their primary comes to is really hard. And, and that's the beauty of, um, of enterprise software is that it's very sticky. Likely that over time people are going to use more of it. And um, that's what the enterprise software guys are gunning for. They're basically saying, well, look, our opportunity is, is huge, humongous, long runways. We can invest, as you said, for growth. We can get more of that, you know, green field opportunity. And, and then we're going to make money in the future, right? So it's all about growth and scalability. And they all have high margins, right? They, they don't support gross margins, typically around 75, 80%, maybe in some cases, 85%. So there is opportunity to make money. But they also have a significant marketing cost, uh, which, you know, the goal is attract customers. And in theory, you keep them. Like, yes, we're not going to switch from Slack. I, I, they'll be very difficult to do. But Slack can attract us because they have a free product. We can upgrade to a low cost product. But for Slack to get a giant organization that already say has Microsoft, you know, in some of its other areas, that's a big get. That's an expensive thing. And that's dragging on profits for all of these as well, right? Absolutely. So like you're right. So if, if it's all about the go-to-market strategy that you're talking about, and um, really for some companies, they, so, I mean, the way to think about Slack, we're using Slack as an example, right? But Slack is now owned by Salesforce. Um, but, but Slack is basically thought of as an email replacement. It's basically going for that. It's killing email or it's right, trying to kill, supplant email with something else. Um, now, of course, there are 
organizations which are going to not use Slack, but they we think about the number of organizations that have email that want to reduce their email usage and then essentially change Slack to be the new email. Lots of opportunities. So this there can be competition, but yes, you need marketing to um, uh, to get there. You know, one of the things that you know I was going to talk about here is um, this idea. So I once spoke with uh, actually I had interviewed once a CEO of a small software company. We listed here in Australia, and he used a nice uh, analogy. Uh, his analogy was that you can think of the sales and marketing as consisting of two parts. One is you've got hunters, and then you've got gatherers, right? Uh, and the hunters, the idea is that hunters basically go and find new customers, right? And the idea behind gatherers are these are people who actually sell existing to the existing client, basically keep them happy and upgrade them to new things. This is the big deal with, with most of the enterprise uh, software um, as a service businesses, right? They've got multiple modules that they can sell. And once you're in, the idea is going to sell you more. I'm going to get you to buy more seats, get you to buy new modules, but get you to buy something else. Now, you think about um, Slack as an example. Slack is now owned by Salesforce. Well, if you already had Salesforce marketing software, maybe we can sell you uh, Slack as well. If you own already Slack, maybe you can sell your Salesforce marketing or something else, right? So Salesforce has got a wide range of products it can sell. So another way to think about profitability, which I think people generally don't do, is, is to think about dollar-based retentions, which is basically saying, well, how much money did I make off the customers that I had last year, this year? So basically those customers that I did not lose, what is the extra money I can generate from them? So that is the money that you're actually generating from your gatherers, right? These are people who are expanding your sales. And if your expansion is 20%, typically 15 to 20%, that's basically, let's call it half of your sales force is basically generating that. The remainder is generating the sales. So you could, in theory, reduce your sales and marketing expense by, say, 30%. And you'd compromise on your growth rate, but you could all of a sudden become profitable, right? And, and, and I think that's the, that's the, I think as long as the retention rates are high and the dollar-based expansion rates are high, I, I think they actually have the license to lose money, which is, you know, I, I think it's counterintuitive, but at scale, these things will make money. There's also a customer number where they take the, 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 their foot off the pedal, right? Like, so if you're Amazon, uh, which is obviously not a software as a service business in their core business, but a lot of their early money was spent on just getting your credit card, getting you into the system. Once they hit, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's, you know, 150 million people in the US, you know, as regular members and maybe two thirds of those as prime members, they're going to see diminishing returns on their marketing dollars. I think we're seeing Netflix in the US uh, getting to the point that customer retention is more important than customer acquisition. Obviously, with software as a service companies like Slack, they must know what the penetration point is, right? And when it becomes defense, when they can start saying, okay, we want to keep these people, and that just becomes a business, and the stock story is what else can they sell you? What else can they add? Where can they expand? Hey, absolutely. So the great example with Netflix, right, which is not really... I mean, technically, Netflix is a subscription service, right? It's not a software service, it's a subscription service, like many of the software businesses. And if you look at how Netflix reports its numbers, exactly to your point, when it reports US numbers, it says, well, we're making a profit in the US. <laughs> they have a contribution profit. So if you think about you know, the cost to sell to the US, the products that they're actually streaming in the US or the video shows that they're streaming in the US, for that, they're actually making significant profits. They're not making profit on the international component of the business. 
but that's where the growth is, right? So exactly, you, you know, you figure out very quickly where your, you know, the tipping point is. And in many of these software businesses are very early in that game. So therefore they, you know, even a company like Salesforce, which is a very big company, uh, you know, it's, it's about 22 billion or 22 billion is projected to do 25 billion this year in sales. It's still growing at 25%, 20 to 25%, right? So think about that at 25 billion, you're growing at 20 to 20, 25%. You're roughly doubling every maybe four years, three to four years, right? Your sales. You could easily stop spending money on acquiring new sales and just basically say, well, I'm going to generate a 30%, 35% operating margin on that ink on, on that, you know, $25 billion, right? That's a, that's a lot of money that you could be generating right, right there. So, um, I think again, these companies know what the opportunity is exactly to your point and, and they'll switch whenever necessary. So let's close on a theoretical question here. So high flying software as a service companies, stock at crazy multiples, but really valuable, really easy to raise capital. Stock prices down 60, 70, 80%, whatever the numbers are, it's not that much for everybody at some point as a CEO, do you have to flip the switch and say, Hey, right now it's not going to be easy to raise money. We need to slow down growth, which is then going to make it harder to raise money. But we need to actually think about survivability. Like you could be a really big company with a lot of customers. And if you run out of money, you still go out of business. Yeah, so that, that's a fantastic, I love that question. So here's, so we've been talking about operating profits, right? And, and operating profits depend on, you know, how, for example, you're recognizing revenue. Now, software businesses typically would sell a contract saying, oh, well, you know, or sell a you know, contract for three years out, they might actually receive the funds well ahead of time, but they might not have actually recognized it because they can't recognize revenue well in head. So most companies would, would say, like a, a business like Salesforce would say, we have what's called uh, remaining, remaining performance obligation. It's almost a direct visibility into what their future revenue is because they have basically been contracted to receive those funds in the future. Either they received it or they're going to receive it. I think what's, what's interesting for many of these software companies is to think about free cash flow, which is cash from operations, how much money is coming into the door and how much money is going out in say CapEx, right? If you look at that, for most software businesses can run at break even. And many of these companies that high flying stocks were very smart. They raised capital when the stocks were high. So most of these businesses are, cashed up they have a billion dollars plus in in their balance sheet they actually don't need money uh, right now and they can continue growing losing money because they're technically not losing money because you know they're break even in on a cash flow basis or they're even cash flow positive so th there's a lot of nuance going on here which you know would, would, would if people are looking just at you know earnings per share, they're just missing that out because they're missing the nuance that, well, this business is actually generating a lot of money. They don't need to raise capital. If there's a business that needs to raise capital though, that's in a tight spot. And if their shares have been battered, they're in a tight spot. And you'd usually see some strong correlations as a high short interest in those cases, because even the people shorting it know that their balance sheet is in a, in a tight spot. So. Yeah, I mean, there's some point to that. Yeah, and, and there is some nuance and it's, uh, you know, it's something that, that we look at, like there are often non-cash expenses booked as cash expenses like uh, executive compensation through stock. It doesn't actually cost you any money, but it's booked as cash. I, I always go back to my days at the toy store where technically when you sell a gift card, you have the money, 
but you're not actually supposed to record the revenue until the gift card is redeemed. The problem right. is a crazy percentage of gift cards don't get redeemed. That's why Starbucks really wants to sell you a gift card. Uh, because, you know, it's not that they hope it won't get redeemed, but they know it's going to get forgotten. That's a $10 gift card. Somebody's going to use $7 and 83 cents and they're not going to get the, the whole thing. Uh, it became very tricky from an accounting point of view, especially at Christmas, where we might sell $100,000 worth of gift cards. And the reality is those are a liability to a point, but technically you can take a percentage of them over time. There's a lot of different accounting tricks there. I won't belabor it. Anurban Mahante, we will talk about software as a service. We will revisit these companies on a specific basis uh, in a segment we are taping later. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Anurban Mahante. Thank you, Dana Abramovitz, for sticking around. Thank you, person in the comments who's clearly spam. We're not going to take that one. Uh, we appreciate so many of you watching the show. Sam Bailey, before we hit our finisher, let me ask Dana a question. Dana, do you pay for any streaming services? Uh, no. Yeah, I don't picture you, I don't know, <laughs> sitting around watching a lot of television. I will say... I do watch a fair amount of television, uh, a lot of it in the background or a lot of it post 10 o'clock at night. My wife and I uh, usually have something we watch together uh, and then we watch things, uh, you know, apart uh, when I'm traveling for her or for me when she falls asleep before me. But Sam, let's hit our finisher here. Which streaming player can compete with Netflix and Disney? This was obviously inspired uh, by the Warner Meter Media Discovery deal. Uh, we talked about this earlier in the week. I like Discovery better on its own than being tied up with Warner Media, which has to be a more expensive thing. Uh, only 6.2% said Paramount Plus. Yeah, and I, and I apologize to our friend Alan Sokoloff. We've talked about Paramount Plus on the air. When your best franchise is Star Trek and your commercials are touting that you have SpongeBob SquarePants, you're not competing with Disney's IP or Netflix having a massive advantage in terms of establishing some shows. Uh, and Peacock, I just think NBC owns a whole lot of nobody cares. And maybe the Olympics will help a little bit, but an awful lot of Comcast subscribers had access to Peacock and didn't turn it on. So, you know, if I tell you you have something for free and you don't go get it when you don't actually have to leave your house, you have to do very little, I don't think that's very good. So about 67% of you said none of the above. I'm actually 100% a believer that none of the above. I, I think we're going to have Disney. We're going to have Netflix. I'm not including Amazon Prime because I understand that some of you are getting Amazon Prime because of the shows. Most people are getting Amazon Prime because of delivery. So I, I look at Amazon Prime as a, as a vanity play right now and, and perhaps not a great investment for Amazon, though maybe at some point they'll need the differentiator. Um, so yeah, I don't think there is anyone who can compete. I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation and I think it's going to be a mistake owning 30 second tier franchises, you know, uh, Amazon buying MGM, which, you know, gives it some, some rights to old James Bond movies, but not new James Bond movies, uh, doesn't seem all that valuable to me. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of mistakes here. You're going to see a lot more go nineties. If you remember that one, that was the Verizon take uh, on short-term videos. You're going to see a lot more quibbies, uh, companies where, where people who have no clue just try to chase after kids. With that, we have reached the end of the show. Dana has a class to teach. If you want to get in touch with us, it is info at seveninvesting.com. That is our email. It's usually Steve Symington. That's for questions about the service, questions about your membership, uh, questions about sort of anything other than individual stocks. Don't send us, hey, could you research this stock that, uh, you, know, that, that you haven't researched uh, or maybe have, but, uh, but have only talked about to members. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, 
That is at seven investing at the number seven investing. We appreciate you for doing that. We thank all of you for watching today. We'll be back Friday at 1230 for Sam Bailey behind the glass for Dana Bramovitz. I am Dan Klein. We will see you Friday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.